sometimes I hate Facebook. You know, when I first got into Facebook, one of the things that really intrigued me was looking up old friends. And I was quite excited about seeing friends from, from high school and, and college and seeing old friends from growing up in the church back in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. When I was growing up in the Worldwide Church of God in Milwaukee, we had 90, that's right, 90. We had 90 teens in our YOU group in those days. It's hard to imagine 90, but that's, that's what we had. But you know what's depressing about Facebook? When I look through Facebook for my friends from the church, friends with whom I played basketball week after week after week, winter after winter, friends with whom I competed in talent competitions and track meets, and we had bowling parties, we had roller skating activities, we had campouts and Bible bowls and Bible baseball and Bible studies and Bible talks. You know, these are friends with whom I shared my youth. And Facebook shows me that the most important things that we held in common, a belief in the way of the God of the Bible, that common bond is gone. And Facebook shows me that. When I watched the Feast film this year, very nicely done, by the way, kudos to Dylan King in particular, the creative work that was done. But as I watched, I had two thoughts. One, that it's good for our kids, and it's good that they can talk about God. That's quite unusual in our, our current, current culture. But, but second, I also couldn't help but think of my Facebook dilemma. Because if the same pattern repeats itself, all the activity and even the uh, ability to talk about the Bible and to talk about God will eventually end up in the rearview mirror for our kids. And we will not truly have done our job if that happens. All the words, all the activities, all the seemingly shared beliefs will only be, be a veneer that wears off with the progression of time. So, so how do we make God's way stick for our children? How do we raise, and this is the title, the working title here, how do we raise really good children? Now, I say good in the vernacular and common usage, not in the specific, as I'm sure Mr. Ames will remind me afterwards. But in terms of the common usage and the vernacular, how do we raise really good children? Proverbs chapter 23, Proverbs 23, see, we read here in verse, in verse 24, the father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. Verse 24, the father of a good child, a righteous child, one who grows up in a way of righteousness, and he who begets a wise child will delight in him. So let your father and your mother be glad, and let her who bore you rejoice. You know, will that be us? Will we produce a generation that carries the flag forward? Will we produce a generation that picks up the baton and continues doing the work when you and I are unable to? What, what legacy will we leave to the lives of the young men and young women who will face the most dangerous time in the history of the world if the Bible is true. The time leading up to Christ's return. Uh, what kind of legacy, what kind of training will we leave for them? 
because that's what they likely will face. You know, when we consider the tidal wave of the, the negative influence that, that is washing over our children today, you know, the task can seem very daunting. I mean, how, how can we really truly offset the, the influence of, of Facebook and YouTube and Google? How, how can we offset the influence of, of school and the other activities that surround us? Well, we can and, and we, we must. We, we have booklets about the family that are well worth reading. If you haven't taken the time to go through those, pick them up, read them, think about them. And you may say, well, I'm not a parent. But you can encourage parents. You can be a support to parents. You can be a support and a coach and encouragement to other kids. So you reinforce what they're trying to do with their children as opposed to working against them. So it's good to be familiar with the principles that are given in our, for example, the successful parenting booklet that Dr. Fall authored. And we also have a special report. It's called The Future of the Family. And it's a compilation of articles that review different points of, of, about the family. But with our behind-the-work film as a launching point in terms of our, our topic today and going forward from that, I'd like to focus on, on three tools in our arsenal that will help turn the tide. Well, let's begin with talk. Since we talked about talk, let's begin with, with words. And, and make no mistake, the, it's important to put the right words in our children's mouths. Let's go to Exodus chapter 13. Exodus chapter 13. Exodus 13. We read here after the Exodus that as the children of Israel were moving past that episode, they were told by Moses inspired by God not to forget what had just happened. And in order not to forget, it had to be transferred. The lesson had to be taught to the next generation. So he talks about the days of unleavened bread and how they're in in the first part of chapter 13 and how they're tied to um, a memorial of what just happened. And he says, verse 8, And you shall tell your son in that day, saying, This is done because of what the Lord did for me, when I came up from Egypt. So tell your son. Make sure your son and your daughter know what happened. Make sure they're familiar with the story. And as we go to verse 11 and 12 and 13, continuing down through this, this whole section, it repeats this, this concept. He says, verse 14, So it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is this? Why are you doing these actions that we read about in verse 11 and 12 and 13? He says, You shall say to him, by strength of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And he goes on and and explains and says, remind them about these these things. So the, the the right things to say should be in our children's mouth. They should be familiar with that. So let's let's we'll say point number one. Key number one is simply that we must teach our children the right things to say. No doubt about it. They must know the right things to say. That is for sure. And one of the most exciting things, pardon me, I, I uh, keep blowing my nose, is the aftermath of some of what you have suffered as well, but um, we're good now. Um, one of the most exciting things about watching a baby develop is when they begin to talk. Now, when I, when I say exciting, I mean exciting Comparatively, because you know, a lot, a lot of what babies are about is actually not very exciting as far as I'm concerned. I mean, it's tiring, 
They're smelly. They're often annoying. So when I say when I say exciting, I mean this part, the talking part. It actually is very exciting compared to those other other things. And and, and you can't wait. You're anticipating the potential of them saying things, and they're saying da da da. He said, "Oh, he said daddy," and the mama said, "No, no, that wasn't. That was just ah. That was nothing. That was just you know sounds." And so, but you're 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 hanging on every sound, knowing that at some point they're going to say something. And you, you want to catch it. And if you can be there and hear them say mama or dada or whatever else they say, you know, um, it's been so long I don't even remember. But anyway, those of you who have little babies, you have to uh, remind me of what they, what they say. But they say something and you're waiting on, their, on the words that they will say. And it's, it's a very exciting thing. And, and as they learn to talk, they're, they're learning to listen and understand because it's not just one way, is it? They're, they're, they're actually re- repeating what you're saying. They're modeling on what you're saying. So it's, very, it's a big part of it, of children's life from the very beginning. Communication is, that is. And, and God wants us to use that communication for good. In other words, we are supposed to be communicating, or I'll just go ahead and say preaching to our kids. We're supposed to be preaching to our kids. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. And we read fundamental principle here when he talks about, Moses talks to the people about the goodness of God's laws and how important it is that they would, they would obey his laws because those laws represent wisdom. We're hearing about in the, in the sermonette. God's laws are wise. They are wise. They are wise ways. And so he says, Verse 7, what great, for what great nation is there that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us for whatever reason we may call upon him? And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law which I set before you this day? Only take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. But it's not just for you. I'm not just teaching you. I'm doing this for the benefit of your children. So he says, and teach them. Teach them to your children and to your grandchildren, especially concerning the day you stood before the Lord your God in Horeb, when the Lord said to me, gather the people to me, and I will let them hear my words, that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, and that they may teach your children. So emphasized again, the important, emphasizing again the importance of preaching to your kids. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 11, it reiterates the same principle, emphasizing the same importance of rehearsing the rules, rehearsing the principles, not giving outs or, well, this can't really be done today in our particular age, but actually rehearsing them like we believe in them, that that's what we're commanded to do. And so he says, Deuteronomy chapter 11 and verse verse 18 Therefore you shall lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul and bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontless between your eyes. And you shall teach them to your children, speaking of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. In other words, don't hesitate to preach to your kids. And yes, we do have permission to be a broken record to our children. It's okay to be a broken record. In fact, we're supposed to be a broken record 
You know, and if our son thinks to himself when he's just about to punch his sister in the, in the arm, I know what my mother would say, you know, or I know what my father would say, and he sort of stops for a second and says, that's a good thing because a tape has been created in his mind. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. In other words, there's an imprint that's playing in the head, playing in the mind, recorded on the mind. And that tape that is playing in their, in their head those words that are, be, that, are, that are playing should be clear and without equivocation if we're really doing our job. You know, we don't teach our son, for example, um, look, don't punch your sister in the arm unless, well, if she's really annoying maybe, or like on Wednesdays you can, or like if she just won't stop talking. Um, some brothers in the history of the world have had a situation where they've been sitting in a car, protecting the, the innocent and the guilty here, and a sister has continued talking incessantly for hours at a time. And it has happened in the history of the world where a brother has rolled down his window and stuck his head out the window to get away from his sister talking incessantly. This has happened in the history of the world because sometimes that's what sisters do. But that does not give said brother the right to punch the said sister in the arm, because the rule is don't punch your sister in the arm. In other words, it's, it's clear. There aren't outs. And with God's law, it's God's law the same way. If we continually enunciate God's words clearly, we'll be teaching our kids the right things to say. We'll be rehearsing in their minds the right things that will come out of the mouth, that should come out of the mouth, and we'll be rehearsing a standard of excellence. And, and that's what require, is required of us, brethren. We're required to teach to the standard of excellence, the godly standard, the bullseye, not to the exceptions. You know, the actions of our children may not always hit the bullseye, and, and we cannot demand perfection with every shot. But if they know what the bullseye is, then their competency will improve, and they will become more and more excellent and closer to hitting the bullseye if they're clear on where the bullseye is. Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1, or Proverbs 1, I should say. Proverbs 1. And verse 8. My son, hear the instruction of your father. You can't hear it. The son can't hear it unless it's being said, right? He's only he's hearing it because it's being it's the preaching, it's the broken record. My son, hear the instruction of your father, and do not forsake the law of your mother. Both father and mother are enunciating the right thing to do, the godly thing to do, the standard of excellence, without equivocation, again and again and again, day after day, when you rise up and when you lie down. When you're walking in the way, whatever it be, they're hearing the, that as a, as, a, as a clear, clear standard. For they will be a graceful ornament on your head and chains about your neck. <coughs> so children <coughs> should learn the right words to say. And they learn the right words to say by their parents saying the right words. But that's just the first step. Uh, have we, will we, do we take the, the, the next step and add the next component in our child rearing them? Let's, let's go to Ephesians. You see, because the next part of that, then the next key is 
that we should teach our children how to walk, not just the words, but how to walk in a godly way. You know, it's just like the toddler next learns how to stagger about a little while, a little, little bit. That's why they're called toddlers, because they toddle on their chubby little legs, and they sort of stagger. And that's what happens with little, little babies. They learn to walk, don't they? And, and this, so this is the defining part of the qua- equation. In other words, just saying the right thing is, is not enough. You know, as parents, we can be very pleased when Johnny can recite his Ten Commandments. And it's a proud moment in our life, you know. And so we congratulate ourselves and we bask in our moment of glory that Johnny said the Ten Commandments. But what is it that little Johnny is doing as we are basking in our moment of glory? What is he doing? When he runs off, how does he act? Well, it's our responsibility as a parent to teach, not just to say. So we read in Ephesians, for example, chapter chapter 6. We read about children and parents. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. So obedience, for them to obey, they have to be taught to obey, right? You can't have obedience unless it's, it's taught to. So that's really a responsibility that falls back on the parents. We can't say, my child's just disobedient. So well, did you ever teach them to be obedient? I thought about that part. So obedience is, is actually talking more to the parents for a child than it is the child. So he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. This principle that was given to ancient Israel, even when we read in the, the Ten Commandments, so this promise that, that this this command that had promise. You think about it, it actually applied to them as a nation uh, as well as personally because a nation cannot last long if authority disintegrates. And, and they, they could not last long in the land if honor and obedience was not taught to parents because what would naturally happen? Well, law, disorder, disobedience, which we know would result in them being cast out of the land. So there was a bigger part of what's happening here on a national basis a basis as well as an individual basis. But he reminds the readers, he says, verse 4, and you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the... Now look at the words here, two words that are, that are used specifically here. We already talked about the saying, but now we read in verse 4, bring them up in the training and admonition. So admonition, you might say, refers more to the, 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 the verbiage, but the training is added to it as, as, as something in addition. And it's that part of teaching how to walk. Now, it really sounds uh, like an echo of what we, read, what we read in Isaiah chapter 30, doesn't it? We, we probably just read this. We probably heard this during the Feast of Tabernacles. In Isaiah chapter, chapter 30, Isaiah chapter 30, we read about this time in the future where in the millennium people will still face challenges. But just like a child that has the blessing of parents who are actually teaching, we read here, it says, verse, <coughs> chapter, 20, chapter 30, verse 20, 
Though the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the waters of affliction, what, what's the key? What's the, 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 the special thing that's added here? Yet your teachers will not be moved into a corner anymore. A child left to themselves without training is, uh, is, is open to what, whatever, whatever suits their fancy. And they may go this way. They may go that way. They may bounce off the walls. In other words, without training, without direction, what a child does is very different from what they do when they're given direction. And so it says, you, you will have the benefit, he says, of having teachers who will not be moved into a corner anymore. But your eyes shall see your teachers, and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk you in it, whenever you turn to the right hand or whenever you turn to the left. So he, 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 he actually talks about the fact that they're going to have what our children should have today, training. Correction, training in terms of what is being done, not simply just, just, just words. In other words, practicing that standard of excellence. Back to Proverbs chapter, uh, Proverbs 22. Proverbs 20, 22. As, as you see, we're doing a review of a lot of the, uh, the scriptures that we review about child rearing, but I hope they'll, they'll come together in a coherent way in terms of what I'm talking about. Proverbs 22 and verse 6. Proverbs 22, <coughs> excuse me, verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. In other words, it's talking about the, the importance of ingraining habits. We all know that ultimately, we all have free moral agency, and we make choices. And our children will make choices. But the important thing is they don't make uninformed choices. If they choose to go the wrong way because they've chosen that way, that's, that's one thing. But if they don't know that they're a better way because we've been negligent in teaching them the way of excellence, then, then that's our fault. That's our fault. So what he's talking about here is the emphasis on our part of the, the training, training the child when the, in the way they should go and so, uh, again, very similar to what we, what we read about in the millennium, this training and um, an emphasis on the standard. One more key I want to add today. Let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 6, we're reading another uh, verse about training, but I want to emphasize a little, something a little bit different. Deuteronomy chapter 6, we read about the importance of obedience to God and our focus on God alone. And he says, verse uh, 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Verse 6. And these words which I command you today shall be in your mouth, but not just for you. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And again, this emphasis on talking of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. 
So I want to emphasize here at this point that we're talking about a culture, a way of thinking that is being created within the home and within the community, a way of acting and, and, and reacting, just like, frankly, God will create in the millennium. If we go to Habakkuk, again, a, a millennial scripture, <coughs> Habakkuk chapter, chapter 2, and we read here of a time in the future, just again, parachuting into this one little, this little insight in the future. But we talk here as you, as you look at uh, a time when um, it will be, God will, will be establishing his kingdom on, on the earth. And he talks in verse 14, just a, a mention is made of another time, very different from our days when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So in other words, there's, a, there's a, a picture that's painted of a culture, of a perspective, a way of thinking that will fill the, the tomorrow's world. Well, that's what we're, talk, what we're talking about when we read Deuteronomy chapter 6, an atmosphere. Now, what I mean, so what's the point that is associated with that? Well, it's this. It's this. We teach our children, third then, third key is that we teach our children where they fit in the universe, where they fit in the universe. There is a universe. There is an, an atmosphere. There is reality, and teaching them what it is and where they fit. Because the atmosphere that we create within our home, within our family, includes God's laws, God's ways. We've talked about that, but it also includes where we as parents place them, where our child fits in that little universe. I want to read something from a a book titled The Wisdom of Amish Parenting. It's interesting. ran across it. My wife ran across the book recently, and uh, it's got some interesting concepts that I'd like to, uh, to, to touch on here. It's by uh, Serena Miller and Paul Stutzman. Here's, here's a quote from, from the book talking about some of the principles in Amish parenting. Amish children are taught from an early age by example as well as words. Their needs and wants are important, but not more important than those of the family, the church, and the community. It is the exact opposite of individualism, which is what most American children, uh, which is what most American children are used to, and it is the exact opposite of what most American adults believe. It involves a surrendering of the will rather than emphasizing the importance of the person over the group. Now, what she uses is a term that describes this way of thinking that's used within the Amish community, and it's called ufgeva, ufgeva. U-F-F-G-E-V-V-A, Ufgeva. And, and Ufgeva basically means you are less important than others. He says, for several decades now, continuing with the quote, the need to give children a good self-image has been drummed into parental consciousness, and we've responded in an interesting way. We have assumed that those children who were told that they are special and intelligent and gifted or showered with words of praise and approval and given trophies for their shelves and certificates of excellence for their walls, will be happy and content and possessed of a healthy self-image. Therefore, one could assume that Amish children who are taught that their wants and needs are not more important than others, children who are not constantly praised and who will never receive something as chokhmut, I'll describe that word in a second, as a trophy, would, just, would struggle with poor self-image. 
They struggle with depression. They would struggle with eating disorders, social maladjustment. But that's not what has happened. The Amish suicide rate is less than half the national average. Surveys have also, also shown that Amish teenagers have a healthier and more satisfied view of their bodies than American teens. Anorexia and bulimia are virtually non-existent in Amish culture. So are unemployment and homelessness. A survey of Amish women in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, concluded that on the whole, Amish women perceive themselves as happier and less stressed than those in a similar study of English women. There is an aversion to hochmut, that's, again, I'll, that's not, it doesn't have anything to do with my cold, that has to do with uh, the word, is H-O-C-H-M-U-T, hochmut. Hochmut is the idea of haughtiness, arrogance, and pride, okay? So in other words, they want nothing that, 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 that seems like haughtiness or arrogance or pride. So he says, avoiding hochmut absolutely permeates Amish culture. It is, for example, uh, hochmut to boast about one's biblical knowledge or to praise a child's beauty or intelligence. Amish parents, for instance, would never put a sticker on the back of their buggy proclaiming to the world that their child was an honor student. To do so would be hochmut. It would embarrass them. Different way of thinking. Different way of thinking. Now, I'm not advocating we all become Amish, okay? So don't get me wrong. But interesting principles because this does sound a lot like Philippians 2, doesn't it? Let's go look, let's look at Philippians 2. Philippians chapter 2. What do we read about the way we should the way we should think about ourselves in terms of those around us in our community? <coughs> Philippians chapter two, you're familiar with it. Fulfill my joy, verse two, by being like minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. And then he says, verse three, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Look out, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So what we're talking about in terms of where a child fits in the universe and learning that, no, they are not the center of the universe. Children are to be loved, not to be made in the center of the universe. By learning that, actually, and understanding that, that uh, this uh, a proper principle, as we read, really, frankly, here about humility. And let's, let's remember this. We're talking about a godly approach for training our children. We're talking about a godly approach as an antidote to the self-esteem movement. And, and remember, the opposite of high self-esteem is not low self-esteem. The opposite of high self-esteem is humility and modesty and meekness, which really is strength under control, isn't it? That's the opposite of high self-esteem. So when children are held to the same standard as everybody else, which is what we read here in Philippians 2, verse 3, because we're, we have to learn as we grow up that we are not the center of the universe, don't we? And when we teach children that, as opposed to teaching them something different, like teaching them about Santa Claus and then taking it back, instead we teach them they are not the center of the universe. They're part of the family. They have obligation to the family. Everything doesn't revolve around them. What happens? We create an atmosphere of reality for them that is comfortable as they grow up. They actually take a, have a sense of responsibility and, and where they fit, as opposed to being trying to now jerk them out of, the reality, out of their false reality because somewhere along the line we have to say, no, 
You don't get everything you want. You don't get to do everything you want because the rest of the family has to come into, come, come into play as well. And they're like, what? When did that happen? Because they've grown up being the center of the universe. So part of training children, the third part is this, this atmosphere, learning a healthy focus on others as they grow up and a healthy understanding of their place in the universe. Three keys talked about. Yes, rehearsing the things to say, rehearsing actually the actions and walking, how to walk, and then understanding a perspective of where a child fits. So I want to go back now and take the last part of the sermon then to, to give some, some principles as to how to apply these different principles, give some, some examples of how to apply these, because you might say, okay, that's all well and good. I sort of understand what you're saying, but how does this happen in, 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 in real life? So let's go back to the first one. The application of teaching our children the right things to say. What are some examples of things they should learn to say? Well, we already talked about the Ten Commandments and how, uh, especially children, I understand that's being done as part of Bible lessons, where the Bible, the children's Bible classes, they're taught to recite the Ten Commandments. Good thing. It's helpful. It's healthy and helpful to learn to recite the Ten Commandments. So we read Exodus 20 and we go through and we and we memorize those and recite those. Good things to learn, to have in our mouths. By the way, we hope to be having some uh, youth Bible studies out in the next, in the near future that will be additional uh, guides and helps and assistance for, uh, for children in regard, to, in regard to things to memorize and things to, to focus upon. While we're in Exodus chapter 20, let's go back, let's go there since I've been, I'm talking about it. Another example, let's talk about a specific example of things to learn to say. We could certainly say, becoming very familiar with what we read in in verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So it's good for children to have this rehearsed in the mind so they're familiar with it, so they can say that. They can talk about the Sabbath day. They can be able to explain what the Sabbath day means, what the Sabbath day is. That's healthy. That's helpful. Hebrews chapter 10, part of the Sabbath as well. Things to learn to say. Hebrews chapter 10. And verse 25, still on the topic of the Sabbath day specifically. Hebrews. Chapter 10 and verse 25. Good for our children to understand the Sabbath day means gathering together. Let us consider one another. We can teach our children. Verse 24, to store up love and good works. And we teach them. We don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. We gather together. So we teach our children to say the Sabbath is the Sabbath. It's not open. It's not open to discussion. It's not negotiable. We don't teach. We don't teach. Uh, Now, Johnny, there may be an ox in the ditch, but if there is not, we'll go to church. Or now there may be a time when you have to get that ox out of the ditch. And, of course, this is a choice whether you get that ox out of the ditch. So, yes, it's a lifestyle choice. So sometimes there may be an ox in the ditch, but sometimes we'll go to church when there's not an ox in the ditch. 
And after a while, child, what, what, so what does that mean? But we don't teach it that way. We teach what we read, read here. The Sabbath day is holy, is set apart. And we don't forsake the assembly of ourselves together. We gather together. That's what we do. That's what we do. We recognize that's the gold standard. That's the godly standard. If, we, if there are if something that occurs that is an exception to the rule, we treat it as an exception. Not, we don't teach the exceptions as the rule. And so they're familiar then. Oh, that's what we do. We go to church. We gather together. We, you know, you notice that there's a choice in terms of the Sabbath. The choice is whether we obey it or not. It's not whether we, we decide whether it's good or not. It's whether we obey it or not. And so we don't present the Sabbath as a choice to our children. It's what we do. If they want to disobey, come that time they're able to do so, well, that's, that's a different choice over here. That's a choice of rebellion. But in terms of teaching the Sabbath, God doesn't give us a choice as to whether the Sabbath is holy or whether it's a time for assembling ourselves together. That's not our choice, and uh, we teach it to our children to, so they can say it that way. We teach our, our children to say that, well, the Sabbath service is for the assembling of like-minded believers. And we teach them to say, if they're ever challenged on it, that the Sabbath is, is a time when we gather together with our brethren. It's not a stop-and-shop of different ideas and beliefs. So we can pop into one with one group and pop into another with another group, all dependent upon who's there and what activity they have to author, offer, whether they have a really cool family weekend or ski activity or, or somebody I know that's there that's a buddy. We don't teach our children that the Sabbath is about all that other stuff well, we teach our children the Sabbath is a time, it's holy time, and we assemble ourselves with our brethren who are committed to that way of life as we are. So we teach them to explain to others what the church is, what the Sabbath is, and what it's all about. Titus chapter 2. He's talking about some words because they need to have the right words in their mouth. And they need to have the words from the Bible in their mouths. Titus. And chapter uh, 2, for example. It's good for us to teach them the right things to say about women. Especially, wouldn't you say, in a day that there is utter confusion about women, men, what we are, even, what we do, what we're, what we're about is there not confusion today? Well, there's a place that is free of confusion, and it's right here. Because we read in the Scripture, it says, as for you, verse 1, he says, as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. So what we're going to read is sound doctrine. There's a good starting point, wouldn't you say? That the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience, the older women, likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, and that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Now, if you don't rehearse that, this with them, with your daughters, and your sons, in terms of understanding what responsibilities, what godly women have, who is going to do it? 
if you don't and I don't, who will? Where are they going to hear it? And if we do not teach this scripture as the way of God, the standard, who will? You know, if we frame this as a lifestyle choice, like whether we have an iPhone or Android, okay, then, well, it's just a lifestyle choice to us, and it will be to them as well. And maybe I'm just a little bit over the top, but when I read the words that the word of God may not be blasphemed, well, it just makes me think maybe this is important. Wouldn't you say? You know, maybe there's a reason why God recorded this when he says it's not to be blasphemed. Maybe God knows something about what happens to family, what happens to the community, what happens to a nation and a culture when this is just a lifestyle choice. Maybe he's got something and he has an idea of what happens when this is defied. And that's why he said it's not blas- it should not be blasphemed. Now, can our sons and daughters read this and say this without being laughed at or scorned in our world today? If you say this in many circles, you will be scorned. But that's what the scriptures say. Now, now we get to, you know, it's easy maybe you might say to talk about the Sabbath. But our children taught to say things because we're saying things that are sound and that are from the Bible than that are not popular. That's a little more tricky, isn't it? It takes a little more courage. And so, but that's what we're supposed to be doing. You know, if we go to Proverbs 31, we read Proverbs 31 in terms of what a woman is about. It's like a day planner for a woman who is engaged in, in creating a healthy, well-taken-care-of family, isn't it? And, and our sons and daughters should have have these words painting a picture in their minds as to what a godly woman is all about. And I guarantee you, it will not be there unless we put it there. Because if you Google perfect woman, and I did just to check it, if you Google perfect woman, this is not the picture that comes up. I hope you have your cell phones off, because I see anybody who's looking down right now at their cell phones, I know exactly what you're doing, okay? But if you, if you Google it, Perfect woman, it's not, it's not what comes up. So, how about teaching the right things to say about men? Well, we read just across the page here in 1 Timothy chapter 5, for example. 1 Timothy chapter 5, here's a principle. Jumping into the, the section here, but let's just go to verse 8. If anyone does not provide for his own, it's talking about men here, because you know how I can tell that? Because it says his. I'm slow, but I, every once in a while I pick up these things here, Okay. So his, he says, if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. I don't know, but those sound like really strong words to me. It basically is one who is, who, who should know, but is not, has chosen to act like a, an unbeliever. That is courting, wouldn't you say, maybe am I being too extreme and saying the unpardonable sin of basically knowingly defying God? Well, I, I don't, I mean, it, it's, it seems pretty plain to me that this is a plain statement that we should teach our children and they should be familiar with it and they should not be afraid to, to actually say it, to say the words. Oh, this is what a godly man is. A godly man is one who trains, who learns, 
who, who works to provide for his, for his family. I want to read, there's another, another, um, another book that I found interesting in preparing. It's called, from, it's called Parenting by the Book by, by John Rosemond. And here's what he says about the difficulty of a world in which uh, the culture is so against the biblical instructions. It says, in the late 60s and early 70s, the secular, educational, and media elites began to demonize political authority, the military, institutional authority, especially within corporations, religion, especially Christianity, and the two cornerstones of the traditional family, the traditional marriage and traditional child-rearing. Mind you, all of those authority traditions derive their legitimacy from the Bible. In effect, this was an assault on the very Judeo-Christian principles upon which Western civilization was built. The attack on the traditional family was especially vicious. Psychologists and other mental health professionals allied with neo-feminists to characterize the traditional family as the primary institution through which the so-called patriarchy exerted its domination of women and manipulation of children. This, they believed, ensured that girls would grow up willing to be dominated by men who have been trained as boys to disrespect and dominate females. Feminists equated traditional marriage with slavery and promoted open marriages in which neither party was obligated to be faithful. Feminists and the increasingly female-dominated mental elite joined with the media to demonize men as natural aggressors. The 1950s father, who might have worked two jobs, was characterized not as responsible, wanting the best for his family, but as remote. A guy who really cares little about either his wife or his kids. A guy who, in fact, uses his money and physical superiority to keep them in line. That's the change that has taken place because of the way that men are viewed and women are viewed and roles and responsibilities. Now, I could talk about how other examples of teaching our children the right things to say about, about character, some examples of character. Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. How about principles of character? Verse 27, I say to you who hear, this is for our children's benefit, as we're talking to our children, reading to our children. This is what God says. This is what God says, guys. Here's, listen to this. I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Yes, you had a, you had a problem with the other kid. Well, look, here's what the Bible says. You know what? Handle it differently than punching them in the nose. Okay? I mean, this is what the Bible says. We, we can do our own thing. We can make up our own solutions, how to get revenge, how to whatever. But here's what the Bible says. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. And for him who takes away your tunic or your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. Ooh, there's a powerful one, isn't there? In other words, do to others as you would have them do to you. So these are, these are words that have to be explained and have to be, but they need, and they need to be enunciated because if they're not familiar to, <clears throat> to our children as they're growing up, certainly they're not going to understand how to implement them. So as we instruct, I just gave you an example of some principles of godly thinking, in terms of godly character. As we instruct them, we are, we're telling them about who and what God is. 
so that they can enunciate the nature of God. When we read the scriptures, in a thousand ways, we're teaching them about godly character. And we're teaching, we're saying, show love towards God and towards your neighbor. Be respectful of others. Be nice to other people. Don't be mean. Don't be cruel. Be polite toward other people. And we should teach our children to say these things. This is the tape that should be playing in their head and the words that should be coming out of their mouth. Let's take that second principle and uh, and apply how to teach our children how to walk in a godly way. Just a couple techniques that I'll talk about for the moment. And there 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 are more, but let's just focus on a couple. First of all, boundaries. Boundaries is a way to apply this principle of teaching our children how to walk, not just talk, but walk in a godly way. Recently read a book about a, um, a professor who, who, who did a, a study or who talked about a study that was done uh, in regard to children's basic needs for, for rules. And he told the story of how in a, this particular study a, on a large inner city school playground, um, re- researchers tested the need for structure with small children. And they let the children freely play on a playground that had no fence around it. And what they found is that the, the children instinctively played close to the teachers who were standing outside watching them. They, they were close around them, sort of clustered a, around them. They were careful not to go. This is an urban inner city. They were careful not to go around the edges of the playground. There's no fence. They didn't want to get near the edges. You know what happened next. They put up a chain link fence around the whole playground. You know what happened? The children played in every corner of the playground, here to there, because they felt comfortable. They had boundaries. They knew where they could go, and they felt comfortable with those boundaries, and they felt protected. So in other words, part of, of the teaching the walk is creating boundaries or, or creating definition. Um, just quickly, if we look at Exodus chapter 19, I'm not going to turn there. Give you a couple of three examples. God did this with Israel as he prepared to to give the Ten Commandments. He said, you are not to come beyond this point. He created a boundary. He created a boundary with the tree of life, didn't he? And the tree of knowledge of good and evil. In in essence, when you talk about boundaries, um, the same thing with the tabernacle. Remember in the tabernacle where Nadab and Abihu offered profane fire. God said, no, you don't. There's a boundary. You don't go past this boundary. So so God teaches boundaries in terms of of practical application of how to walk. And and really, boundaries are about yes and no, aren't they? Boundaries are about yes and no. No, don't go there. Yes, you may go there. And it's very healthy to teach this. And so what we find then is, for example, we talked about the Sabbath a little bit. How do we teach boundaries with the Sabbath? I mean, our kids may know that God tells us to keep the Sabbath. You know how we, we know that? Because we ask them, we could ask them, for example, does God tell us to keep the Sabbath? You could ask any kid here, does God tell us to keep the Sabbath? And guess what they're going to say? Yes, they do. Okay. Why? Because they've heard it and it's rehearsed. Good. God tells us to keep the Sabbath. Our kids will say that. But what does that mean? Training how to walk Boundaries, definition, is, is the next step. Training means we teach our kids, guess what? You don't stay up 
all night on Friday nights, or you don't hang out with your friends on Friday nights till all hours of the morning, because guess what that means? The next day in services, you're going to be sleepy. Oh, I see. We're defining how to properly keep the Sabbath by, no, don't stay up. Yes, go to bed at a decent hour. Um, We don't spend, for example, the training could be son, Johnny, or Jamie, or whatever. We don't spend all Friday evening on Facebook with your friends, and you don't spend all Sabbath morning watching YouTube kitten videos because it's not a profitable way to spend the Sabbath. No, you don't do that. Instead, you do this. You sit down with your family, for example, perhaps, and you have a, have a meal together, and you talk. And no, you don't go on your cell phone. You put the cell phone away, and you actually, yes, it, it, it's, it's like, you know, you're reaching for it. You know, no, if you don't have it on your body, it's, you're grabbing for it somewhere. But no, you put it away and actually look another person in the eye. Now, now we're defining something as simple as, as keeping the Sabbath. Now, again, they're, you know, they're saying, do we keep the Sabbath? Everybody says that. Well, everybody everybody in, go in the church will say yes. But how about the definition, the practice, the training? What are we doing for our kids in, the, in that regard? How about the holy days? Leviticus 23 gives the holy days. Would, the fee, would any of our children, when asked, should we keep God's holy days, would they say, I don't, well, uh, maybe, uh, I don't think, oh, yes. Oh, I, what, I'm not sure. Wait, well, no, they wouldn't say that, would they? How about if we ask any of our young people, should we keep the Feast of Tabernacles? Our young people would say, as well as all of our adults, yes, yes, we keep the Feast of Tabernacles. But how about how to keep the Feast of Tabernacles? How about the training? How about the practicum? How about the walking? What about that? Well, training means uh, we don't just teach our kids to say the words, the Feast of Tabernacles is awesome, yeah! I love the feast, it's awesome! Yeah, great feast, yeah. That's okay to teach that, I suppose, but what goes along with it? Well, we walk them through the experience of approaching the Feast of Tabernacles as a time where we actually build bonds of brotherhood with our fellow members, of course, by our example, by including our children as we spend time with our brethren in productive ways, and we, 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 we go, for example, even activities and meals and these things that we do with each other, they're not just because we're running a cruise ship service as the church. It's not the Living Church of God cruise lines, you know. Um, this isn't Princess Cruise. This is it's the Living Church of God keeping the Feast of Tabernacles. So therefore, every activity, everything we're doing, we do at the Feast is, is meant to actually build those bonds with our brethren, which means we want to reach out to those whom, that we don't know, that seem to be alone, or renew acquaintances, certainly, but we don't get off in a corner with our buddies. And we don't go to uh, focus our feast on, you know, the Disneyland. But we're actually there because of what the, the meaning of the feast, which means building bonds of brotherhood, honoring, worshiping God, learning about God's way of life. And at the end of the feast, we can't say that we've actually done those things. Then what do you think we've taught our children? So, feast is awesome, yeah, but what does it mean in terms of of practical? What are they learning? And make no mistake, how we train our children will be their experience of the church. Sometimes it's frightening. I talk with somebody, and they tell me about the church. And they tell me about, oh, yes, you know, years ago, and they'll tell me about the church. 
And I'm thinking to myself, wow, I must have been on Mars because I was in the church during those same years, and that sounds really unfamiliar. But I have to say, you know, and I'm, I'm talking about sometimes things that happen that they'll say that would be negative in one way or another. And I, but I have to say, for them, it's real. I don't think they're making it up. So when the, the experiences that we create with our children, that's going to be what they think the feast is about, brethren. That's what they think the Sabbath is going to be about. When they describe it as somebody else, they're not going to describe it according to what the Bible says necessarily. Well, they'll, they'll describe it from the, what the Bible says through the lens that they've experienced. So it's a pretty weighty responsibility to ensure that the experience that they have is one that really reflects a godly mindset. That's our responsibility. That's ours. Now, there are other ways uh, that we can teach practicum about in terms of not just talking, but, but actually walking in God's ways. Talk about defining boundaries. You know, other boundaries that are, are defined by, for example, the Proverbs. Now, I, I mentioned, I, I mentioned the, uh, in the Scripture in Luke about loving others or doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. There's a, there's a principle there, isn't, isn't there? But if we go to the book of Proverbs, for example, we have all kinds of details about how to do that. For example, Proverbs 27, verse 2, where we read, Let another man praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. We're told not to brag or praise ourselves or talk about ourselves. Instead, we focus attention on others, not on how good we are, what we've done, all of that. Well, that's just a very practical tool in teaching our children how to, how to function, one that we should live by as well. But, but it's a very practical thing. You know why? Because children very quickly will talk, start talking about how great they are. They'll fall into that habit very quickly. Of course, we as parents do the same. But it's one that we can nip in the bud when they're young by, by saying, well, that's not loving your neighbor. Would you want Joe Schmo, your friend over here, to just be bragging about himself all the time? Oh, no, that's no good. Well, then don't brag about yourself. Listen to him. Don't talk about how great you are. How about getting angry quickly? Proverbs 15, verse 18. A wrathful man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger allays contention. We teach our kids. Don't get angry quickly. Don't lash out at, at your friends. That's not doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. Now, I could go on for ad nauseum. You understand what I'm talking about. There's so many principles that then actually take it to the next step from just words to application. And that's what we do as parents. That's what we should be doing. We can create mechanisms. Talk about boundaries. We can create mechanisms. Mechanisms for success. In essence, teaching the way to go. Uh, this is what God did in Exodus chapter 16 with the manna. You know, he created a mechanism or a, you might say a, a handrail. And in orienteering, when you're in the woods, if you're doing orienteering, you use handrails, which means if you want to go to that place over there, you're looking at a map, and you want to go to a destination, and you see there's a river that goes north to south. Well, you know if you're walking through the woods and you run into that river that you've gone to the point you can't go any further. That's a handrail. That is a guide as to how to get to your destination. So use a, use a handrail in order to navigate in the, in the woods. Well, we use handrails in life. God uses handrails, doesn't he? When he gave them, when he taught them about the Sabbath day, what did he do? He said, I'm not going to give you manna on the Sabbath day. So there's going to be no misunderstanding as to when the Sabbath day occurs. 
because there won't be any manna that day. That's a handrail. It says when you get to that day, there won't be any. Oh, this is the Sabbath because there's no manna. Ding. Now I got it, God. You see? Very clear. Handrails that guide guide us. And so we have we have handrails in the Bible. We have handrails of in terms of how we, we treat the, the elderly. Uh, for example, in, in Leviticus chapter 19, we read, let's let's read that because we we have opportunity to to apply this all the time. We have the opportunity to apply it here at services. Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 32. You shall rise before the gray-headed or the hoary head, as it says in the King James, and honor the presence of an old man and fear your God. I am the Lord. So we have two, we have a specific here. And the, the, it's a handrail that is teaching us what? That the handrail is rise up. And what is it teaching us? It's teaching us how to properly honor and show deference. So you might say the, the character trait, the, the way of walking, is taught by the mechanism, which is standing up. So in terms of elderly people, we rise as a specific act of politeness. We teach this to our children. And then the honor is as part of an attitude that is developed because it, it differentiates between an elderly person and your little five-year-old buddy. It says there is a difference. There is a difference. And, and when, when children rehearse this physical act, you know, they're not just doing some overly authoritarian, old-fashioned custom. They're actually practicing politeness, which, again, is that application of the love towards neighbor in very real practical terms. In other words, this neighbor deserves honor for his or her, or her age. And there are other examples of mechanisms for teaching honor and deference. I think one of the examples is, is it's important that we teach our children when they come to Sabbath services that our children should actually talk to uh, older people, talk to other people, look them in the eye. When an older person says hello to them, look them in the eye, shake their hand, not ignore them and look away. Well, they, it's important that, that a mechanism like that be, uh, be, be taught. I think it's important to say yes, sir, and yes, ma'am. I think it's important to use last names for uh, for older people, because that it's a mechanism. Uh, by saying, instead of saying Fred, as for a six-year-old child to a 50-year-old or 60-year-old man to say, hey, Fred, to say, hey, Mr. Jones, what is it? Does it show some sort of bizarre, old-fashioned, weird, authoritarian mentality? No, it shows politeness, and it shows deference, and it's simply a handrail. It's a mechanism that teaches what is appropriate for a child to an older person. It's not that horrific to do. And I say that because um, I think in the South it's more common. But other parts of the country, um, uh, when, you know, when, when you, like our children, we t- teach them to say Mr. or Mr. whatever, they, <clears throat> there are times when people um, say, no, just call me Joe. This is why I say what I'm talking about is for everybody. Because even if you don't have children, brethren, you can be able to help parents who are trying to apply and teach some of these principles. You can help them by not, for example, in this case, not saying, oh, no big, no big deal, call me Fred. No, if the parent says, call, call him Mr. Jones, don't countermand the parent and say, no, just call me Fred. Because what's happening is the parent is trying to actually teach respect, and you undermine what they're trying to accomplish. 
And when they teach the child to say, yes, sir, they say, oh, don't call me sir. I'm not a sir. I'm just Joe. Don't undermine what the parent is trying to do. They're trying to teach their child in a practical way, a way of, of respect, which is now love towards neighbor in an appropriate way. So we're talking about mechanisms that are all part of character because politeness, discretion, um, this is all part of, of character. And ultimately, what we're talking about here is even more fundamental. And that is, we're teaching our children to take responsibility for actions. Now, hear me carefully, brethren, because all that I've been talking about in terms of the, of the walk and these, these bits and pieces of, about ways, they really boil down to taking ownership of, 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 what, we, of what we're doing and taking responsibility for our actions. Cain did not learn this, did he? Moses learned it. Aaron did not. He didn't reflect it. Uh, David did. He said, I have sinned. Saul did not, did he? So what I'm saying is, by actually having to have, actually do things, by actually having to, to take responsibility for doing things in a right way, what are we doing? We're teaching a child ownership. Ownership of their actions, which is really an act, a very uh, helpful thing to teach children. Let's go to Acts chapter 2. In fact, if a child can learn to take ownership for their actions, that they are held accountable, yes, you can teach a five-year-old child to say, yes, sir. It's possible. Okay. And when they don't, you can say, hey, Sonny, say, yes, sir. There's ownership of actions that's taught here. And you know what? Acts chapter 2, isn't this a fundamental of what God is trying to teach us as adults, as those whom he is calling? Acts chapter 2, we have the whole example of Pentecost, and then we have Peter's sermon. And in verse 22, Peter said, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, by which, which God did through him. In your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Pretty strong words, wouldn't you say? What did they say? No, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. We, I wasn't actually there. I was around the corner. I didn't say, kill him, kill him. No, I was, I was in the other side of the city. No, what they said was, verse 36, when he repeated this, he said, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? They took responsibility. They took ownership, a very mature characteristic, and one that we're expected to take by God. If we can teach that to our children, to take responsibility for their actions, then we have done them a favor in their, in their process of, of maturing. So just saying words is one thing, but actually having to carry out actions and be accountable for those actions and sometimes reap the consequences of doing wrong actions That's learning to take responsibility. Very powerful. Now, let me just briefly, then, last five minutes, talk about the application of teaching our children where they fit 
in the, in the universe. Let's um, I'm going to talk about just one facet of that as I as I as I wind up. When we teach our children in terms of what they're where, where they fit, and we try to create mechanisms and boundaries and practical ways, we can still be failing abysm, abysmally at raising a good child or the righteous child of Proverbs, Proverbs 23, all for, for one simple reason. And we can be doing lots of right things, but we can fail for one simple reason. Deuteronomy chapter 6. We read this quickly, but we read this before. When he says, verse 6, these words which I command you, verse 6, today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. We read that before. And based on what we read here, who should be the number one influence on your child's life? You. You should be the number one influence. Not just your infant's life, not just when your child is young, but as they grow through their teen years, prepare for adulthood. Unless you are the number one influence in your child's life, you will not be able to impress upon them the values that you are trying to teach. And unfortunately, in today's world, too many parents allow, too many of us allow other influences, our children's peers, teachers, coaches, television, internet, music, video games, all of that to take precedence over our own influence. Let me describe to you a young boy of today. We'll call him Billy the Kid, and he lives just down the street, doesn't go to here. He's only 10 years old. He doesn't go to high school yet. Let's say that Billy, age 10, goes to bed at 9 and wakes at 7 on average. Over the course of a year, therefore then, Billy would be awake for, I've done the, so I've calculated this, so I have to read it so I don't forget the, the, the amounts here, okay? So Billy over the course of a year, is awake for 5,110 hours, during which he spends 1,260 hours in school and on the way to and from school. That leaves 3,850 hours. He spends an average of four hours a week going to and from and participating in after-school activities for a total of 208 hours, leaving 3,642 hours. The typical 10-year-old, according to statistics, spends 20 hours a week watching television. If we assume that Billy is typical, he's watched 1,040 hours of television a year, leaving 2,602 hours left. He spends 360 hours on homework and school projects, leaving 2,242 hours. He plays video games an average of one hour a day. That's 365 hours in a year, leaving 1,877 hours left. He plays with his friends an average of an hour a day, so that leaves 1,512 hours. He is a lot on the Internet. Uh, he's allowed the, on the Internet an average of one hour a day, leaving 1,147 hours. He spends an hour a day playing with his toys, working on hobbies, or just doing nothing, leaving 782 hours. He's in a church youth group that meets two hours a week, leaving 678 hours um, for his parents to be of influence. 678. Unfortunately, they're doing other things at least half of that time, so the actual influence they have over Billy is 339 hours a year. If time translates to influence, then, Billy's parents are having less, exerting less influence over him than his teachers, his peers, television, coaches, video games, and the Internet, 
and Spotify. The family is not Billy's primary environment, and his parents are not his primary influence. And if the truth were known, it's frankly been that way since Billy's life early on, because both of his parents work outside the home, and before he was in school, he was in daycare and preschool. Now, you might say that's unrealistic. Really? Who or what is the primary influence on the typical American child today? Do the math. It's not the parents. It's not the parents. And we can say that we're different, but are we? What are the influences that are guiding and shaping the thinking, the words, the action of our children? Is it us? Is it us? Or is it other influences? Have they been taught, taken hostage by the influence of peers at school or video games or music or YouTube? Who's doing the teaching in our homes? That doesn't mean they won't learn the right things to say. Because they can still learn the right things to say because they go to church. But what are they actually learning? What are they actually learning? What's the soundtrack for life? What is their soundtrack for life? We may be saying the right things, and our son or daughter may be repeating the right things, but what other teaching are they hearing as permeating and influencing them? We can't serve two masters, and our children can't either. Can't either. So we have it. It's important that we take stock of where we are. I just want to conclude with one last scripture. Then in Genesis chapter eighteen and verse nineteen. And as you're turning there, let me ask you: What is your dream for your children? What is your dream for your children? There's a short quote from this book from the Amish child rearing that thought was interesting. The author says, my husband and I were talking with some Amish fathers recently about the role of discipline and hard work in raising his children. My husband had a question for the men. As fathers, what is your dream for your children? All three men took time to ponder this. As they thought this through, I rolled various possible answers around in my mind. How would the parents respond? Would they say they dream of happiness for their children, good health, a good education, maybe a great job? usually what things we talk about. When our friend Lester answered, it was none of these things. My dream for my children is that they grow up to be people of value. He did not add to that statement. That was his dream for his children, period. And if I want my child to grow into a person of value, Lester said, there must be consequences to my child's actions. Otherwise, he will grow up wild and will be of no use to himself or to others. I look at it this way. There are consequences because I love you. If I didn't love you, I would go about my business and not bother trying to discipline you. Interesting thinking. What is our dream for our children? What is our dream for our son or our daughter? We can't guarantee that they'll remain faithful to God, but it behooves us to make, do everything that we can to make it so, to take responsibility for everything that we can in their lives. Abraham was selected by God, and he had a mission. As we read verse 19, God said about Abraham and then to Abraham, for I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. Powerful words and a powerful mission statement. Some of his children failed, but some succeeded. 
How about for us? What's our mission? God has given us one. He said, I've known them in part so we can train the next generation to carry the flag, to carry the baton into these very dark days that are ahead. Let's do our very best to make sure that we're doing, we're doing everything within our power to do that.